Welcome to the December 15th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. Uh, I am your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Governor Hickelooper's selection for the Colorado Supreme Court that he announced this week. CU Professor Melissa Hart will fill the vacant seat left when Allison Ide was nominated by President Trump to serve on the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, I've heard a, a little bit of back and forth uh, via social media about, I think, some predictable reactions. But what is your reaction to Melissa Hart being named at the Supreme Court? Really smart choice. She is, she is very smart herself. She's a good woman. She will be great on the court. In the interest of full disclosure, her mother sometimes plays poker with my group. But the coolest thing about Melissa Hart is that her grandfather is Archibald Cox, for those who are fans of the whole Watergate era. That's very pretty cool connections. I'm not sure if the Watergate connection or the connection to Patty's poker game is better, but either one's pretty good. You can't hold that against Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, your thoughts, especially that she is replacing Allison Ide, who uh, um, uh, at least would not be considered uh, progressive or liberal uh, with her background. What do you think of the Melissa Hart being named to the court? As, as Patty said, Melissa Hart is very nice. She's very smart. She is highly capable and competent. And <clears throat> she was also the furthest left, left choice available uh, to Governor Hickenlooper, and that's what he chose. And the, to go from Allison Ide uh, to Melissa Hart is going to push this court, I fear, even further from enforcing what the Colorado Constitution actually says, rather than using it as a pretext uh, for whatever the, the leftist uh, political agenda of the day is. Eric Sodom, political analyst, we'd like to hope that folks out there probably can name most of the Supreme Court justices. I think the, the, the viewers of Colorado Inside Out probably know that. But when it comes to the Colorado Supreme Court, it's tougher to know the actual individuals and where they may go. Does this really lean at left? Is it always left anyway? What, what, what does this uh, um, um, naming of Melissa Hart to the court do for the Colorado Supreme Court? Well, if John Hickenlooper, if Governor Hickenlooper set out to pick Alice and I's polar opposite. He found her. I echo everything David and Patty have said about the, the, the personal qualities and the intellect of this woman. But she is as left-leaning probably as Alice and I was the right-leaning justice uh, on the Supreme Court. On a personal level, very nice uh, human being. Uh, my wife has had the privilege of teaching her kids uh, here in Denver. Uh, but uh, it will make a noticeable difference on the court, and it underscores the fact that elections matter, particularly gubernatorial elections. And we've had a left-leaning court to various degrees for a long period of time because we've had Democratic governors. Allison Ide was appointed by that lone Republican governor, Bill Owens, in a long street of streak of Democrats. And now uh, John Hickenlooper, in his last year in office, has appointed Allison Ide opposite. Penfield Tate, attorney at QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. What do you think of the appointment and its ramifications for the Colorado Supreme Court? 
Well, yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, the governor, one of the neat things about the job is you get to make these appointments. And in this case, um, you had three super qualified candidates. You couldn't go wrong with any of them. Uh, I, I think it's correct that, that Hart was probably the more more liberal of the three, um, but she's clearly qualified, clearly capable, and it's going to be a great addition to the court. And the governor didn't have a bad pick, and he made a good pick. And so I think it's going to work out well. Mayor Hancock announced on Friday that a committee will be formed to consider if Denver should submit a bid to host the Olympics or the Paralympics in the future. Patty, uh, the Olympics in Colorado have not had a very good relationship. Back in uh, the 70s, it was about we didn't want this kind of growth. It really propelled Dick Lamb to office. What makes uh, Denver or state officials think that it's going to be different now? Well, and I think it's very different, but they don't understand just how mad people are here. We put up a story this morning about 9 as soon as this announcement came out, and within minutes we had dozens of comments from people who were very upset. The same people who are upset about Amazon, they're upset about this. Denver's in the middle of a huge number of projects. You've got the $1 billion stock show project right right close to this office. I went to one of their announcements this week, and it's very ambitious. It's going to I think be a good thing ultimately, but it's going to screw up that part of town for a long time. You've got the convention center expanding. They just announced the architect on that, that Fentress is going to be back. Performing Arts Complex is going to expand. We have all these projects, and now we're going to, obviously, in order to get the Olympics, we're going to have to have a sweet bid that would be somehow subsidizing them. And that was part of the problem back in the early 70s. It was who, pay, who pays, who profits. And people were upset, not just with Colorado growing then, but upset with who was going to make the money off the Olympics. And since then, Olympics have become even tougher to figure out how to pay for them. So you can't see any deal that Denver and Colorado would offer that isn't going to peeve taxpayers. David, I had the, uh, the great honor of driving on a road trip this summer to drive through Calgary. And it was a beautiful town, got into the beautiful mountains, a lot like Denver, where they're right next to Great Mountain Resorts. And it was a little weird seeing uh, part of their Olympic legacy there, but kind of being almost like a skeleton as you drive by, not, not part of the, the cityscape anymore. Uh, it doesn't seem like Denver and Denverites, as, as Petty mentioned, are going to want this. So I, I guess why would officials want to even try to form this committee? <clears throat> Because Mayor Hancock, I think, is in this respect very out of touch with public sentiment and his spree of corporate welfare, he's, I guess he's trying to figure out what he can do to, to top that. I, I think he's runaway winner for worst idea of the year. And in fact, I'd say if he, if he sticks with this and this becomes an issue, he may have done the one thing that actually, uh, if he seeks re-election, uh, could, could really harm him. The International Olympic Committee is a is right up there with FIFA, the governing body for world soccer, as one of the most cor corrupt sporting organizations or any organization um, in, in the world. I mean, they're they could be Russian oligarchs uh, for for how they're they're run. The uh, that's kind of offensive to oligarchs. Uh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> IOC demands an immense amount of welfare, not, and not only for the Olympics themselves, but even when you come in to, like, bid how much you have to grovel for them, you know, keep the, the rooms at a certain temperature, supply them with, with all kinds of, of goodies. It, it's a horrible, horrible organization. The Olympians are great, 
great people. Uh, but the IOC is awful. And as Patty said, all these, oh, we're going to build this great infrastructure that's going to help and, and we'll be able to use it forever. Just go to Rio and Beijing and on and on and on. All these places are crumbling. We don't, we don't need really a world-class speed skating facility uh, in, in, in Denver to be a great city. And, and that's the least of the amount of money that would be wasted. The voters overwhelmingly. Uh, thanks to Dick Lamb's leadership, rejected in the 1970s the idea of using taxpayer money uh, to, p to pay off the International Olympic Committee. Eric, as, as much as I personally love the sport of curling, and I do, I'm actually not making a joke, I love curling, I don't think we need an actual uh, curling arena here in Denver, but perhaps I'm being cynical. Do you think there is maybe a silver lining, a bright side of this that perhaps we're not looking at? Where is your civic pride, Dominic? You do not want a world-class curling arena right here in our fair mile-high city. I'm shocked. Uh, I don't know what there is terribly to add. I, I think Patty and, and David have done a good job setting this one up. It seems like Michael Hancock hasn't been reading the paper or watching the TV. He's missed the whole thing about Amazon. He's missed the whole thing more recently about Ink in Coffee, which obviously was a small deal that blew up into a big deal. All of these are symptoms of the same issue. The issue is the disconnect, as we talked before, between this elite opinion at the Hancock governmental civic business leadership level and where most people are. I don't know what the IOC, I, I still can't imagine that the IOC is going to receive this terribly favorably. In the history of the modern Olympics, there's only been one state that has said thank you but no thank you, and that is the state of Colorado back in 1972 vis-a-vis -vis the 1976 Winter Games. Why would you want to replay that bit of history? All it would take, I don't know if it's the five of us or any group of five people, to sit around and talk about forming a committee to put this on the ballot. You wouldn't even have to put it on the ballot. All you would have to do is get a Denver Post headline about an initiative in formation, and I think the IOC runs screaming. And i got to believe it's not the five of us, but there are five people out there talking about it. Penn, I have to imagine that uh, your phone is called several times by people in the community looking for some advice, looking for sage advice on somebody with a lot of experience. If the people on this committee give you a call and say, Penn, what do you think? What advice do you offer? Make sure that the operative word is should. Um, it, based on the release, I think it says something about a committee to examine should a bid be considered. Um, and if it should be done, you should talk to a whole lot of people in this town and in these neighborhoods. And what I think you'll hear is what Eric said and what we've talked about time after time on this show. There feels like there is an immense disconnect between sentiment in the neighborhoods, sort of at the grassroots level, and policies that are being adopted you know, you've got to do economic development to keep a community vibrant. Nobody disagrees with that. And you've got to lead. You can't always follow. So you have to sort of set the pace. But you've also got to be in touch with your constituency and your community. And there is a sense of disconnection that's probably stronger than I've seen here over the past 20 years. And, and so if this committee does anything, it ought to talk to a whole bunch of folks, not just people in elected or appointed positions or captains and colonels of industry, but get down to Swansea, Elyria, and a bunch of other communities and see what people think about this. 
Doug Jones became the first statewide elected Democrat to win in Alabama in 25 years this week. The win over Roy Moore released Senator Cory Gardner from a potentially sticky situation since he called for Moore to be expelled if he were to win and get a seat in the Senate, despite the fact that the RNC and President Trump supported Moore's campaign. David, we've heard plenty on uh, Moore and Jones for the national networks. So we don't need to go too much into there. But looking at Cory Gardner, did he dodge a bullet here? Or are we seeing something in the future where this difficult uh, tightrope to walk of wanting to be maybe a centrist from Colorado, because that's usually where we go voting-wise, but also seeing where his party is going uh, for the sake of party? I think Cory Gardner did the right thing for both his political career for the state of Colorado and for the Republican Party in the long run and for the United States. He was the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee whose job is to elect Republican senators and he said we will not give a penny to Roy Moore and then when the Republican National Committee, separate organization, when they flip-flopped and went back to giving money to, to Moore Gardner said, absolutely not. There are no circumstances under which the organization he controlled, the Republican Senatorial Committee, will ever do anything for Moore. He is right that Moore was, for so many reasons, reprehensible and would be a very bad person to have in the Senate or in, in any position of power. And on top of that, Cory Gardner's job is to elect Republicans in 2018, hold on to that Republican Senate majority, and in potentially uh, increase it when you look at it state by state. Roy Moore would have been an albatross around every Republican. He would have been tied to him, and Roy Moore would have gladly done that. He would have, among the things Cory Gardner's helped, is television in 2018 because Roy Moore, you compare Donald Trump to like, oh, what stupid thing can I say today which will make everybody argue about it on cable TV? Roy Moore would have toned that, turned that up a hundred times worse, and the stupidity level on political television would have gotten even worse, if you, you can believe that. So thank you, Cory Gardner, from among other people, not only all patriotic Americans who disagree with Roy Moore that America is the focus of evil in the modern world, but from all television watchers across this great land. You're saying we missed the opportunity of maybe a really outlandish offensive tweet from President Trump and Roy Moore going, hold my beer. And yes. Yeah, I got it. Uh, so, <laughs> Eric, is this, um, did this tell us a little bit about what Cory Garner is going to be facing in the next two years? He's not up for re-election in 2018. He's going to be working for other Republican senators, but he's not up for re-election himself. But 2020 is not that far away. Are we seeing uh, the challenge he has in the next two years? Cory Gardner is walking a tightrope, and the, the, the tightrope got immensely tighter and narrower when Donald Trump took the White House. Not when any Republican took the White House, but when Donald Trump took the White House. Both parties won in this election. The Democrats won because they reversed a losing streak. They now have a 49th U.S. Senator. Their win is obvious. The Republicans won as well by avoiding the embarrassment that is, and the continuing embarrassment that is Roy Moore, who lost is Donald Trump for foolishly, predictably, but foolishly uh, jumping in with Roy Moore, Steve Bannon, Trump's former and some would argue perhaps still current advisor and, and uh, Svengali or whatever uh, relationship uh, they have. I think the Gardner has two challenges. The 2018 challenge as head of the National Republican Senate Committee is he's going to be faced with these kinds of primaries that Roy Moore won around the country because Bannon is not 
trimming his sails and they are going into Arizona and Nevada and a host of and maybe North Carolina Colorado. and a host of other states looking to primary incumbent Republican senators or centrist Republican candidates. And uh, the Republicans are going to do a level of holy war here over the next year that I think even dwarfs what we've seen over the last year because lots of Republicans are going to start running away from Trump as his numbers crater and as their reelection comes closer. And then, of course, there's 2020 where Corey has to run in a blue state in a presidential year. Let's not forget that Cory Gardner got elected in a non-presidential year, which is a little easier for Republicans. He has to run for re-election, presumably when Donald Trump's name is on the ballot. Penn, what did you think of what we heard uh, from Cory Gardner in response to before the election and after the election? What do you estimate? You know, I, I agree with Eric in one respect. He is walking a tightrope, um, but I, I, I think First, there's the, there's the show piece. I mean, it's, uh, all right, so he took an easy whack at Roy Moore. That's easy. But the other thing Corey, I think, needs to be sensitive to is how his comments are being perceived because he also took a shot at Doug Jones by saying, well, now that he's elected, he needs to vote like a Republican. And the way that's playing on some social media circuits is you've got a Democrat who won with 90-plus percent of the black vote in Alabama, and you've got people, I've seen some posts where people are questioning whether Corey is saying, so, you know, Jones, vote with us and ignore all the black people who got you elected. Now, maybe that's not what he was thinking or what he intended, but that's how people are interpreting that. So he's got to pay attention to that. The second thing is he's got to deal with substance, too. Uh, he's got to remember that Colorado is a purple state, trending blue. Colorado is a state that gave us Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders in the primaries. And I think his biggest problem is if he supports this tax legislation, and it appears he's going to, and if he, as part of that, repeals some of the Affordable Care Act, which has been popular in Colorado with the Colorado State Exchange, I think Corey is going to belie his credentials as a centrist and be perceived as someone who's just, you know, the, the, the attack person for, for Trump and Bannon. And I think that hurts him. And I think he's got to be careful. Patty, uh, Senator Gardner, damn if you do, damn if you don't. Well, he was good in this in this situation. He made all the right moves. People are actually, people who didn't support him before are thinking at least he took the right um, path this way. We were talking about losers. Another loser on this one is Al Franken, who resigned, who had, has not been accused of a crime. You know, the most he's been accused of is bad taste and groping, I believe. But this was the right thing. Voters got to make the decision on Roy Moore, and good for that. Good for those voters. They just wanted no part of him. Who knows if Minnesota voters would have gone the same way on Al Franken, but we'll never know. In a, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> I am so sorry. Excuse me. In an attempt to clear himself of sexual misconduct allegations, State Representative Steve Websock released polygraph results this week related to a 2016 claim. At a press conference on Thursday, Lebsock called out his accuser and fellow lawmaker Representative Faith Winter, stating that she's made false allegations and should also take a polygraph. Eric, I don't even know where to go on this one. This was um, continues the 2017 cycle of you can't make this stuff up. Your take. 
I'll be quick on this one. It's not going to end well. It is particularly not going to end well for Steve Lebsock. The polygraph idea makes for nice theater, but I don't know what the, the, the reliability of these things are. And it's going to make for some very interesting caucus meetings when the Democrats convene here in about three weeks if Steve Lebsock is still around, and he may well still be around. Penn, uh, you've been there. You've been part of the Democratic caucus. You know, I don't think you've had anything this ugly go down while you were there. But, again, I guess go back to that advice question. They call you for advice. Speaker Duran calls you, hey, what do I do with this? Where do you start? Uh, if I'm, I'd tell Speaker Duran, tell Steve and Faith to both shut up, stop talking to the press. I would have told Steve, if you wanted to take a polygraph, which I think is a bad idea to begin with, take the results to the Speaker. Um, don't run around and, and go to the press and talk to a whole bunch of other folks about these polygraph tests. And certainly don't call out Faith Winner and say and insinuate that she's lying just because you took a polygraph and then challenge her to take a polygraph also. Eric's right. This isn't going to end well. And, and it's now beginning to look like it's not going to end well for more than just Steve. I think some other people are going to take a hit through as a result of this. Patty, this didn't, it doesn't seem like this is just a, a single accusation behind closed doors. There was some of the stuff that happened in public. So buying your own polygraph test doesn't seem exactly like a great strategy, but does he, is he out of choices, so he's just going scorched earth? What do you think? Well, he had the choice to he apologize, make a better apology. Um, again, he's not been, a, like Frank, he hasn't been accused of a crime, uh, but what, he's, what he has been accused of is incredible stupidity, inappropriateness, um, and bad behavior by not just Faith Winter, but by others. So he should shut up and decide if he wants to save his political career, stay quiet, be a good legislator, see if he can weather it. But this was a bad move. David, wrap it up for us. I, I wasn't at that party, so I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, if, if he'd stayed his only chance... Uh, and maybe it's not a 50-50 chance, but his only chance at all is is to fight. I think that the polygraph is helpful. It's not; they're not always accurate, but but sometimes they are. And if he'd stayed silent, the consensus of the Democrats was, "Well, we'll, we'll kill him." And uh, this makes Faith Winter all the more of a who's running in a very tough uh, race to, against a Republican female senator. She gets the the Me Too label and all that, and that'll that'll help her. Um, but he's not going along with that strategy, and. Uh, if he's gonna if he's gonna survive, uh, it's only gonna be by fighting. And if you know, if someone accuses you, you either challenge their credibility or you don't. But if you're not gonna challenge their credibility, then you're you're admitting your guilt, which he he seems to have a different view of that and consider himself not guilty of anything. Well, let's get to our very favorite part of the show, disgrace of the week. As always, Miss Cahoon, please start us off. Well, I'm going to return to the stock show, the National Western Stock Show. Uh, but the big project there is not the disgrace. I was at uh, an announcement about their Heritage Center, their building, that they're raising $100 million that they're not asking taxpayers for. That's great. Pete Coors is leading that charge. So out in, in we're ta they're taking care of themselves at the moment. But out in England, there's a woman who is leading the charge to end mutton busting, which happens to be my favorite event at the stock show, you know, where you are putting little kids on the back of sheep and they're running around. They're not trying to put underpants on goats, which happens at gay rodeos. They're not, they're not doing bronco busting. They are just putting little kids on sheep. And they, they have 72,000 signatures in England trying to get rid of mutton busting at the stock show. I'm with you. It's one of the best parts. I mean, the kids have helmets. What is there to argue? 
Well, and the sheep don't have helmets, but they're just running around the arena. They're really not in bad shape. I totally agree. David, your disgrace, Louis. I had no idea about that, that GOAT event. Um, maybe that'll be an Olympic event one day. Um, in Denver. <laughs> yes. Uh, Mayor Hancock's uh, virtue signaling about his econess by trying to promote traffic jams and make traffic so bad uh, that people will have to take the bus or bicycle or whatever is, is working very well and of course leading to much more air pollution in Colorado as stalled cars just sit around spewing out fumes rather than getting anywhere. Eric, we talked about him earlier in the show, Steve Bannon. And anyone who listens to Steve Bannon and there's somebody who's running for governor in Colorado Initials TT used to sit around this table. That seat <laughs> may want to may want to look at those results in Alabama and uh, pick your friends a little more closely. Pen. Well, there's the whole cabal: Roy Moore, Roy Moore Steve Bannon, Donald Trump. Uh, and, and for more, you lost. Get over it. It happens. Concede. Go away, and try to get appointed to the bench again. <laughs> anything could happen. <laughs> Hope springs eternal in Alabama. Uh, time to say something nice about somebody. Patty. Well, as we've seen lately, people have very short memories in Colorado, if indeed they have any memory of Colorado history at all, because we still have so many people moving here. So I would say head to History Colorado, where they have um, Zoom In. It's 100 objects from History Colorado's collection that tells the story of not just the state, but 13,000 years ago, who was living here, and get some perspective on what's going on. David. Those write-in voters in Alabama who decided, well, they didn't like Doug Jones on the issues, and they didn't like Roy Moore as a human being, and in fact, the write-ins exceeded uh, Doug Jones' margin of victory. Eric. Colorado lost a good person this week. Uh, para Executive Director Greg Smith passed away suddenly. Some people have perceived Greg and me to be adversaries because Greg has run PARA for the last five years. I've been leading an effort to bring some necessary reform to PARA. Those are substantive policy disagreements. Greg was somebody of immense expertise, capability, unquestioned dedication to his membership, uh, fundamentally good person who uh, passed away way too soon, way too young, and will be missed. Penn. I agree with everything on Greg Smith, um, who was uh, a friend and colleague. Um, I would also offer, um, it's sort of in the realm of no one's wrong all the time, um, if he's sincere, Marco Rubio, for the stand he's taken in his opposition to um, the um, tax proposal. That is all the time we have for today, this edition of Colorado Inside Out. As always, you can log on to Facebook or Twitter for CIO segments past and present. You can also find our podcast that is back on iTunes and Google Play. And I want to tell you about two really cool things happening at the end of this month. First of all, on Wednesday the 20th at 8.30 p.m., it'll be the broadcast premiere of a local production here called Beats for Tanner. It's a document, uh, documentary about Tanner Seabom, a really brave young man who battled a brain tumor in the midst of wanting to become a professional DJ. And the documentary follows that journey, and it's really, really amazing what uh, this young man was able to do in uh, a, a very, very fierce fight. That's going to be on the 20th at 8.30 p.m. And I wanted to give you a special preview of what we just taped a few minutes ago was our year-end special for Colorado Inside Out. We're wrapping up our big 25th season, and we brought the band back together. That's right. Peter Boyles hosted. We had everybody at this table, plus Craig Silverman and Kevin Flynn, all here for just a fantastic half hour. That's going to broadcast on the 29th at 8 o'clock. You're not going to want to miss it. I could not uh, imagine a better bow to put on the big 25th year. For everybody here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.